0: Hey there, and welcome to the United Church Podcast. We are a new church here in Seattle committed to an ethic of love. We are striving to be a people united, united with Jesus, each other, ourselves, and the world around us. We hope you enjoyed this week's homily. It was the hug heard round the social media world. The hug heard round the social media world. Botham John was killed on September 6, 2018, sitting in his apartment, eating ice cream. When a police officer walked into his apartment, thinking that he was an intruder for her own, in her own apartment, according to her testimony, and shot him dead in his own home, sitting there. Eating ice cream. Botham John was a, an accountant at Price Cooper or Price Waterhouse Cooper. That was his day job. That's what he did, but he was also a deeply formed Christian. Someone who looked to Jesus for everything, was, was involved deeply within his church, and his family had also been deeply formed by the story of who this Jesus was. This past week, Botham Jean's killer, Amber Geiger, was found guilty, to the surprise of many, it's to the surprise of myself even. When I finally saw that a police officer had been convicted of murder of someone else, I was surprised, because that's not the story that we have in our culture and in our society today. But yet he was found guilty, and I felt the sense of like, wow. Huh, that just happened. Only to find out a few hours later that his sentence was only, or her sentence was only 10 years. 10 years. There are people in jail for much longer for much lesser crimes. In fact, there are people that are standing trial now for vandalizing a pipeline that are facing up to 110 years in prison for vandalism. This was murder. Murder. And it was only 10 years, and really it's more than likely only going to be five, because of, that's kind of the sentence that she was given. She'll be in prison for five years and have five years of probation. When all of this news came out, and especially the sentence, I was like, oh, well that's, Huh. Well that's not what the family wanted. The family wanted 26 years, one year for every life of both them that, that both them had spent on this planet. That had spent alive loving and caring for people. They just wanted 26 years, one for every year of his life and when it was 10 years, there was this great cry of injustice that began to swell on social media. This great cry of this is just like it's always been. We're not really seeing the justice that we as a people deserve. The cries out in the hallway, in the courtroom, or in the courthouse, no justice, no peace. The chants beginning to echo more and more and more in the chambers of the courthouse. This has been a really fascinating story for me, a, a fascinating episode in the life of our racial divisions as a country because this is what I am studying, what I am researching in my, my dissertation. And, and so I see these stories, these things begin to pop out more and more and more, and each time they have a vastly different flair to them. What really took me back was this scene in the courtroom. After Amber Geiger had received her guilty verdict, after she had received her 10-year sentence, the family was offered an opportunity to speak to her. And Botham's 18-year-old brother, Brant, took the witness stand and offered her forgiveness. I forgive you. I forgive you. Love you. Two dramatic statements. Dramatic statements in the midst of unspeakable trauma, unspeakable horror in the midst of it all. I forgive you. I love you. And he said, And honestly, I haven't talked with my family about this, but I don't really want you to go to jail at all. What? He then looked to the judge, and he asked her, the the judge, he asked her if he could get up and hug this woman. The judge sat silent for what felt like an eternity, but was only really a couple of seconds when he asked again, can I please get up and go hug her? To which the judge acquiesced, and we had this unbelievable scene in the courtroom of Brant hugging his older brother's murderer. This unbelievable scene of forgiveness and it wasn't short. It wasn't a short hug. It wasn't a bro hug. Tap, tap, tap. We're good. It was a full-on embrace that lasted for a good 45 seconds to a minute. He spoke to her in that moment as she also responded to him. This moment that continued to build, this tension that was in the room, and I found myself watching it with Tracy over my shoulder just crying at the beauty of this scene of forgiveness, wiping the tears away, like completely floored by what I was seeing. but then things changed because i started to listen to the response of people within the black community i started to listen to like these calls for this was actually a very horrible scene because once again once again, all we are seeing in the midst of this is no true justice, but an expectation that we will just forgive, forget, and wipe it under the scene without any change taking place. Without any change happening in this world, in our systems, in our structures, that this is actually a painful scene for the black community. And as I... Tried to wrap my mind around that because I was really struggling, really struggling with that idea that this was actually a hurtful, painful scene for those in the black community. I just listened more and more and more and more to the calls of no justice, no peace. That this is an unbelievably moving scene. However, it still does not change what is happening today. That justice requires forgiveness. Justice requires forgiveness. But it also requires change. We cannot take this unbelievable hug, this unbelievable scene, without also coupling it with the words from Botham's mother, Allison. Uh, Mother Allison John said, Forgiveness for us as Christians is a healing for us. But as my husband said, there are consequences. It does not mean that everything else we have suffered has to go unnoticed, She said, you saw investigations that were marred with corruption. Throughout the entire trial, the corruption of and the cover-up of the Dallas Police Department was being laid waste, was just being laid out for all to see. You saw investigations that were marred with corruption. While we walk as Christians, we still have a responsibility to ensure that our city does what is right. Forgiveness and justice work together. You have to take the whole of the scene together to understand what is at play, what is at work, because justice requires both forgiveness and change justice is setting things right. And forgiveness, although it is a part of it, it does not create the change that makes it stop. It's not putting a spoke in the it's not putting a rod in the wheels of injustice to tear down the system and build something new. Bernice King, Dr. King's daughter, said social justice is love applied to systems, policies and cultures. That it is this application of love, which is what forgiveness and what change is, that it's the application of those things into the systems, the structures, the policies that are at work all around us. What does justice look like? Allison said that as Christians we have a Responsibility that you and I have a responsibility to change these systems. It's the words of Hosea 12, but you must return to your God, maintain love and justice, and wait for your God always. You see, love and justice are intertwined. Love and changing systems and structures and policies that push people down, that oppress people, that keep them under the thumb of power is our responsibility as Christians, as a people. Love and justice. Cornel West, love. Justice is what love looks like. In public Justice is what love looks like in public. Justice is us getting involved in making a difference in the world around us, because justice is action. Justice is love in action. Justice is not about thoughts and prayers. Thoughts and prayers are wonderful sentiments, but that is not action. It has never been action. It has always been the thing that we have used to get out of action. It has always been the phrase that we have coined in order to shift responsibility away from ourselves so that all that we will do is say, Yeah, we're praying. We're praying. And we're thinking about you. Thoughts and prayers. As, just, as injustice reigns rampant within the world around us, as systems and structures continue to be built to give people more and others less, as it continues to tilt the system towards the haves over the have-nots, injustice reigns supreme. And the church continues to say thoughts and prayers. Now, I'm not a person that Hates thoughts and prayers. I kind of think they're important. I kind of think they're good things. I, I think thinking well of others is a part of forgiveness. And I think praying for others is also what we are called to do as a people. But I've always had this struggle with Jesus. This one little line in Matthew chapter 17 that has really just driven me batty. In Matthew chapter 17, we have Jesus and his disciples walking down the mountain. They're walking down the mountain after this unbelievable mountaintop experience. And as they're walking down the mountain, Jesus and his disciples join a crowd. They join this crowd that had been assembled, just waiting for them to descend this mountain. And as he gets down there, a man with his boy who has been demon-possessed has been brought to Jesus and said, Will you please heal him? Will you please do something for him? Because my child is flinging himself into fire. My child is continuing to injure and wound himself over and over and over again. And I have no idea what to do with my boy. I have no idea how to make him well. Uh, Everything that I have tried to do to fix this problem, everything that I have tried to do to change his outlook and his experience, has all failed. Jesus, what can I do? Will you please heal him? And Jesus looked at this distressed father. And he said, thoughts and prayers. Peace. No, no, he didn't do that. He didn't do that at all. Jesus looked at him and healed the boy. He changed that boy's life. He changed that father's outlook on who God was and what was at work in Israel at that time. He changed things because he put love in action. Justice is putting love in action. And then Jesus' disciples were flummoxed and floored at what they had seen because they were like, Jesus, we tried that. We tried to pray, and we tried to cast out that demon through prayer. Like, why why couldn't we do it? What was our deal? Like, what happened? And Jesus turned to his disciples and said, this is where I struggle, because you have so little faith. Truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Because nothing will be impossible for you. What? I've heard this phrase a lot in my life in the church. I've been a part of all sorts of different movements where they have said, hey, you just got to have faith and God will do whatever you want. If you have enough faith, if you, we just watched Aladdin this weekend, if you just rub the lamp the right way, that genie God will come out and give you your three wishes. And you can be the most powerful sorcerer in all the land, just like Jafar. You could become a prince like Prince Ali, right? You could get anything and everything that you want if you just rub that lamp the right way. If you get that genie God going, if you have just enough faith, if you have enough faith as small as a mustard seed, and I I don't know if you've ever seen a mustard seed, but they're tiny. It's like super duper small. In fact, you can buy them in the store in a little tiny container and you dump it out almost like sesame seeds, but you use it to flavor certain cooking and that sort of stuff, they're the tiniest little seeds. They're smaller than sesame seeds. They're, they're weird looking too, but they're like these little brown tiny little balls, right? They're so small, so tiny, so minute. And here's Jesus saying, if you have faith as small as that, that you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. The mountain's out today. It's beautiful, like always. If you, in this room, have the faith as small as a mustard seed, you can make that mountain move to West Seattle. Make it happen. Anybody. I dare you. Right now. It's okay. Just try. And maybe when we walk out of service, when we walk out of this gathering and we look down the hill, we'll be like, oh, snap, who did it? Who did it? Huh? Because that's in West Seattle right now. Like, what? Like, and we'll blame somebody, and, and that person will be like, One me. Because then everybody will be like, oh, you're my new genie. <laughs> you're my new genie. You have faith as small as a mustard seed, and you'll make it happen. I've seen this used as weapons within the church. This idea that the reason why you're not being healed, the reason why you're not being made well or made better is because you don't have enough faith. I've been to, when I was in college, one of the things that we had to do as a part of one of my classes was to attend different faith traditions. And I decided to go to like a faith healing service. And I remember seeing this, this traveling like faith healer come into this worship service and there was probably 60, 80, 100 people in this tiny little crackerjack box of a church. I mean, it was was the smallest building, and it was so hot and sweaty in there. And after about three hours of worship came the time for the faith healing. And this woman, in her motorized chair, complete quadriplegic, blowing into the straw to make her chair move up to the front, got there. And he looked at her, and he said, What would you like? And she mumbled, I want to walk. And he started to pray. And he started to scream. And he started to carry on. And everybody within the place started to scream and carry on and pray. And he told her, get up! Get up! And she didn't. He tried it again and he tried a different tact and a different move and a different moment to make it all happen and he screamed out, Get up! And then he looked at her and he said, If only you had the faith of a mustard seed. If only you had the faith of a mustard seed, you would be able to get up and walk. Where is your faith? If I had been a little bit older, if I had been a bit of a bigger man, I would have stormed him. And I would have shouted him down. Because the amount of faith that it took that woman to get her chair from there to here, believing that God could heal her in that moment, was unbelievable, if only. You had the faith of a mustard seed. You just don't have enough faith. My Jesus struggle is I've always felt like this is hyperbole. And that it has been weaponized within the church because we've never truly fully understood what was taking place here when Jesus talked about it. When Jesus said, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you can make this mountain move from here to there. You can make Rainier move to West Seattle. You can make Rainier move right next to Baker if you wanted to. Like you could just move anything and do these massive, 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 unbelievable miracles in all of the land and all of the world. then I started to read some history. And this is actually a really fascinating, fascinating statement. There was this man named Herod the Great. He was the king over all of Israel. And Herod was alive when Jesus was born. He was known to be this absolutely brilliant leader. He was a man who created some of the most beautiful, marvelous architectural wonders in Israel, specifically around Jerusalem. But he was also known as this brilliant financier, a man who could work finances like nobody else, a way of taxing people really well so they didn't feel just how much he was taking from them. Brilliant, right? (laughs) But also he was known as this military-like Marvel, a man who, who had some of the greatest military victories in the Roman Empire, which is how he ascended to be King Herod the Great. He did all of these things, but no matter how marvelous and brilliant he was, he was mostly known for being wicked, that his wickedness actually knew no bounds, because he saw every single person, became very paranoid later in his life, he saw every single person as one who was there to take his throne from him, take all of his power. And as his paranoia grew, and as his paranoia like, built to unbelievable like, proportions, he started to kill people. It started with his son, and then his wife, and then other family members, and then when he heard about this Jesus, he sent for what is called the slaughter of the innocents, which killed all all of the children two years old and under in Bethlehem, which is what made Jesus and his family flee to Egypt as refugees, and then make their way back into Israel multiple years later after Herod's death. Herod was this super wicked guy that had no faith in God, like, like nothing. But one of the things that Herod did was he built this thing called the Herodian. You see, like it's, it's funny because it's named the Herodian and his name is Herod. So he named it after himself. It's a mountain that sits outside of Jerusalem. It was an absolute marvel that was built on top of an already built hill, an already like natural hill. This is now 400 feet higher than it once was, naturally. Because what Herod did was he found thousands and thousands of people that were his slaves that took took dirt from an adjacent mountain and packed it on top of this thing building a mountain, moving one mountain. He literally moved one mountain to another. This is right outside of Jerusalem. This is right outside of where Jesus was coming down the mountain, talking to his disciples, to which he said to them, if you had the faith of a mustard seed, you could make one mountain move from there to here. Herod terrorized the people in his wickedness. He built this 400 foot mountain above the desert floor. And sometimes, when we pray, God, move this mountain, he gives us a shovel. Sometimes when we pray, God, move this mountain, He gives us a shovel. Because justice is love in action. Thoughts and prayers go only so far. Most of the time, we have to maintain love and justice. We have to put love in action. We have to get involved in what is taking place. Dallas Willard said Justice without love will always fall short of what needs to be done. It will never be as good as it should be. Justice without love will never do justice to justice, nor will love without justice. Ever do justice to love? Justice is love in action. As a church, we talk about being built upon by this ethic of love that we love the people that are around us in this community, that we love without reservation, that we love without boundaries, that we love recklessly. One another here in this space, but also that we are called to love recklessly the people that are around us in our neighborhoods and in our city and in our communities, in our workplaces, that we are to be a people of love. But we have to start looking at love a little bit differently, that love needs to be put into action that we have to start tying together love and justice into one giant bow. Because justice is love in action. All morning long, we've been staring at that picture. Now, I, I don't know if you recognize it or not, but we've been staring at that picture. It's a part of our series graphic. The minute Trevor created this, graphic, like our our series logo. I was like, what is that? I I had no idea. And I, I stared at it, and stared at it, and stared at it. And I was like, I have no idea what that is. None. This morning, I was sitting at the table, finishing up the PowerPoint. I go, oh, that's what that is. And Tracy was like, what? I was like, the, the, the graphic, I get it now. I know exactly what that is. And she's like, what is it? I was like, I don't know how to tell you. So she still didn't know. I was floored and floored. Does anybody know what this is, by the way? Yep. Tracy finally figured it out. Because she saw the next slide. Nope. <laughs> this is what this is a picture of. Back in May of 2018, I was—I I got really lucky in that my flight schedule was awful heading to Knoxville, Tennessee. I flew in and out of Nashville, and on my way back, I decided to make a, you know, a normal out-of-the-way trip to Birmingham and to Montgomery. Specifically Montgomery, because that is where the National Lynching Museum is at. This image is of the shadows of the pillars of all of the names of the men and women that have been lynched, that we know of in American history. They're they're by state and by county. It's one of the most surreal and unbelievable experiences of my life. You walk in and you see they're all at face level to where you can read the names, but then As you make your way through the rest of the the monument, the, the museum that is there, you start to go down and they start to go up. You are literally seeing a lynching take place. It is super powerful. As you see these blocks looking straight up at, full of names, of states and of counties and of people, and the dates that they were lynched. Over 4,000 men and women and children were lynched in the United States from the turn of uh, of the 20th century into the middle part of the century. 4,000. What I think is so important and beautiful about this monument, and what I think is so important and beautiful for us as we step into a question of what does justice look like. Lynching stopped because of Christians. And injustice ended because of Christians who said, that is enough. That is not right. And they fought as abolitionists, starting all the way back in the 1700s an abolitionist movement of Christians were working to end slavery. They rallied together and they worked together to end it and it took them a hundred years. A hundred years before the Emancipation Proclamation, which didn't really free the slaves, just so you know. A hundred years and then another hundred years of work after that before we even saw the civil rights legislation of the 60s and the end of Jim Crow. But in the midst of all of that are nameless Christians throughout time working for 200 years because of love to maintain love and justice in the world around them. This is our earnest work. This is our work to be a people of justice. Because it is God who has called us to that work. Maintain love and justice. And wait for your God always. Maintain love and justice. Justice. Christians have made a difference throughout the world all the time, but we had to be a people that stood up. And it was Allison John who said Forgiveness for us as Christians is a healing for us, but as my husband said, there are consequences. It does not mean that everything else we have suffered has to go unnoticed. You saw investigations that were marred with corruption. While we walk as Christians, we still have a responsibility to ensure that our city does what is right. We have a responsibility. We have a mandate. We have a command from God to be a people of love and justice that changes the world around us. So yes, pray. Pray. Have faith. No matter how small it is, have faith that God will work and believe that God is a God of justice. And then grab a shovel and get to work. Because we have mountains to move. Thank you for listening to this week's homily. If you're in Seattle, we'd love for you to join us on Sundays at noon at 1316 3rd Avenue West in Queen Anne. If you'd like to support our efforts, please visit unitedchurch.gives to partner with us financially. Be in peace and God bless.